Today evening, our guest is Rohit Malikar, and he is a product leader at the Big Four uh, Consulting Group. In today's interaction, we look forward to talking with Rohit on different topics, including tech, consulting, building products, culture, why culture matters for your scale, growth, and much more. So let's get this started. I'll do a, a short introduction for Rohit and followed by who we are and what we do at First Principles. So Rohit started his career with Tech Mahindra and moved to US to pursue his master's from Indiana University, later working at HP and then at a big four consulting group. He spent around half a decade uh, in US prior to returning to India. He holds more than 15 years of experience, 17.6 to be precise. Out of which 12 years he has spent leading product and building culture and like you know leading that practice at the consulting big four consulting groups. He loves talking about DAO, uh, aka DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, and strongly believes that communities hold a lot of potential where the decisions are decentralized. And all this built on digital ecosystem slash platform using blockchain as a technology. So we are go we are soon going to talk about the power of collectivity here. Rohit hails from Kolapur, Maharashtra, and is currently based in Bangalore, Karnataka. Where not working, he loves writing poem and learning golf. I'd be very happy to learn a few lessons from you and Amit when I visit Bangalore. And for our first time listeners, I'll do a real quick introduction about who we are and what we do at First Principles. We build, we acquire, we scale vertical leading SaaS companies making one to five million in ARR. We use our experience, playbook, network, and capital to take your SaaS to the next level. So without further ado, welcome Rohit. Super excited about this chat and we at First Principles are happy to have you as our guest today. Thanks, Nav. Uh, thanks for that comprehensive and very generous introduction. Looking forward to this <laughs> conversation as well. Sure, sure. So, uh, Rohit, I was going through your LinkedIn profile and I like, you know, saw you started career with TechM. Uh, and uh, this is like, you know, the, the 2000, 2003 early, uh, we, we see like SIFI everywhere as like, you know, internet connection, people using Yahoo as the, the AOL alias, like, you know, the chat messenger. Reliance was like, you know, bringing the LG era to, to India. Everyone wanted to become like, you know, Mac going into like electrical. Uh, and I, I see kind of like, you know, you see you selecting the technology slash consulting as your career. Uh, I, I individually, I'm always like, you know, curious about why people select their career. So I'd be interested to know about like, you know, why technology, because career plays a very huge role in our like, you know, life. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would love to understand like, you know, what uh, what decision led to get into technology and then like, you know, especially in the consulting group. Sure. Yeah, it definitely sounds a lifetime ago, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think when I was doing my um, higher schooling, which is the 12th standard mm -hmm. equivalent in the Maharashtra state of uh, education, uh, I did want to do mechanical as well. Um, I think I was attracted to graphic uh, design a lot in context uh -huh. of mechanical engineering and so on. But I think somewhere throughout that um, experience, um, I was attracted to the aspect of use of computing and programming as a whole. I, I have to be candid, I did not know a whole lot when I did uh -huh. the stream for computer engineering. I think in, <laughs> in hindsight, it worked out well, but uh, you know, it, it's as good as it gets, as, as people say. Um, I, I did not think it thoroughly through, but I did definitely enjoy it. So I, I don't regret making the choice, but I'm going <laughs> to disappoint you with my answer. Uh, there's not a lot of thought work uh, behind there, besides the fact that 
um, computing as uh, as a field was expanding. Um, the right, myth of right. Y2K was almost broken. Uh, right, the right. fact that nothing's going to melt down was pretty mm-hmm. pretty evident. Um, <laughs> so that that helped me pick this pick the stream. Nice and and like you know starting as a uh, as as a team low uh, team team lead uh, uh, and I am assuming this is Satyam before before the Techem actually acquired. Right, that's right. Yeah, it 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 was Tech Mahindra in fact, and what was known as the Mahindra British Telecom. Um, so I, I came from that part of the the what we now know as uh, the Satyam entity. Nice, nice, nice. Uh, so I also see that like, you know, you spent over a decade at the big four consulting group. Um, so uh, I would love to kind of like, you know, understand your role, the key functions, uh, like, you know, you lead and operate in. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think um, I, I feel very fortunate to be playing at this intersection where um, I'm able to do a lot of um, what we would typically classify as product management, um, going everything from trying to solve is this the problem worth solving all the way to building something that's that's worth investing but doing it in context of a specific industry for a specific client um, so for what it's worth it it brings in joys of both worlds and it brings in troubles of both worlds as well <laughs> <laughs> in context of consulting and product management so i i spend about half of my time with my clients who are in a variety of um, stages in their own digital transformation journey helping them build experiences mm-hmm that are catered either to their employees or or their customers or business partners. And then I spend the other half of the time building the practice itself, um, which is essentially how, how do we get better as consultants doing product management, which means are trying to solve two questions essentially. Are we are we solving the the right problem for the client and then are we doing it right. the right way? No, that's interesting because uh, at, at First Principles product team, we focus on adding value. And we often ask ourselves this question, are we adding like, you know, the right value at the right stage? Uh, and like, you know, are the clients happy about it? Um, our goal at FP, like, you know, product team is that um, to deliver the best SaaS products uh, and like, you know, under budget uh, and within like, you know, the time. Um, so we often kind of like, you know, uh, experiment. Uh, so I think uh, the one new experiment that we are doing right now uh, these days is using no code slash low code. Uh, so uh, like really, literally like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, the business analysis phase itself used to take like, you know, maybe three to four months uh, going through from documentation, FRDs, SRS, PRDs. And right now today, like, you know, we can just uh, plug and play. Uh, the the curve like, you know, remains the same. Uh, it's just pretty, pretty much the, the logic layer or the business layer kind of like, you know, change. Um, interesting. So I'm sure you must be having like you know some uh, few memories moving from uh, like you know Maharashtra to to uh, Indiana University for your MS, and then like you know joining the Big Four. Uh, so uh, like you know we would love to understand uh, some of like you know your maybe uh, new uh, realizations when you moved to US. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, I think in hindsight, what was the biggest revelation, um, and something that worked in my favor was just the fact that exposing yourself to a culture that's different from what you grew up with um, just organically expands your horizon and opens you up for bigger possibilities which is hard to do um, when you don't move out of your comfort zone Um, it's not impossible but it's just Mm -hmm. harder to do when when you are surrounded by people who think like you 
um, then the then the the realm of possibilities is is lesser. And and so that wasn't my reason necessarily to go for my masters. I think point in time I, I wanted to know more about the field and I wanted to study more, get uh-huh. more avenues from a career standpoint. But I think in hindsight, um, just being exposed to way of thinking that's different from what you grew up with, I think was the biggest revelation. And, and it just keeps paying dividends, you know, through the through the rest of the career then. So if, if your life situation can allow it, I'd definitely encourage anybody to sort of experience at least a few months or a few years in a culture different than yours. No, I totally agree. And Amit and I often have this interaction. Uh, I keep on telling Amit that I want to complete my MS. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, let's let's see. Um, sure. So I, I think the interesting fact, like, you know, Rohit, that a big four, uh, you spent like more than a decade. Uh, would love to understand, like, you know, what are a uh, uh, few things that you often do on your kind of like, you know, uh, daily role. Uh, maybe how does your day looks like? And then uh, we'll move to some uh, like, you know, some questions from there. Yeah, definitely. Sounds good. Um, so I think over time, uh, one of the lessons I learned the hard way getting into consulting, and I think this may be, this was definitely true outside of Big Four as well, is the first few months in the firm, um, I had the um, attitude of waiting for direction and it I learned it the hard way that literally there are very few watertight compartments um, the culture is is pretty much permissionless and and if you if you see a problem you can fix you should just go ahead and fix it that's not something that came organically uh-huh. to me um, so I think that was one of the lessons learned which shapes my day-to-day uh, very, very much at this stage in the career. So as an example, right, uh, because of the size and um, the scale, uh, not a lot of changes are possible overnight, uh, both right. internally at the size we are, as well as some, with some of our clients, most of which happen to be, you know, within the Fortune 500 bucket. So then the question right. is, uh, most of my daily work is, what are the steps one to 10 we need to take so that steps 11 to 15 can be accelerated so that steps 16 to 20 can can happen at scale and deliver impact. Um, so so that, that wasn't something that came intuitively to me. Um, so both for internal practice challenges as well as some of the client problems that we have, we, we you know, all of us love strategic thinking right. and, and painting the blue sky and, and figuring out the end state. Um, but a part, uh, a significant part of my job is also figuring then steps one to 20 to get there. Um, so at a very high level, that's that's most of my day and, and all the risk management that comes with that. So basically, like, you know, making sure that uh, the teams are set for success from like, you know, scaling from 10 to 20, like, you know, that scale. Uh, and and I think uh, one of the one of the key uh, success factor is culture, uh, which we will be surely be talking in some time, um, because I think as you scale uh, the culture, the DNA becomes very important for you uh, to succeed, and not just from ten to twenty, but also like you know from twenty to fifty. Um, and and if if your base uh, is like you know is is built strongly, then um, there are high chances that you will be succeeding. True. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so I was going through like, you know, your Twitter profile, as always, I love your poetry um, and also kind of like, you know, the tweets, uh, the insights that you share about uh, blockchain, uh, DAOs and DeFi. 
Um, so uh, my question, right? So in 70s and 80s, we discovered the the central databases. So we were like, you know, struggling with uh, duplicate entries redundant and how to operate and save databases or like, you know, data rooms. Um, we moved from uh, on-premise data rooms to more of a connected uh, central database accessible for everyone, uh, like, you know, connected with internet. Fast forward 20 years, uh, we are talking about blockchain storing the duplicate keys and like, you know, data on every node. Um, so why blockchain, uh, like, you know, and why decentralized applications to slash like, you know, DeFi, which is like decentralized finance and uh, how it works? Yeah, I think that's a that's a fairly loaded question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I, by no means I'm a tech architect, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. Uh, but this is my uh, understanding. I, I think um, as with any technology, um, we should look at blockchain uh, in context of a use case, as you pointed out, mm -hmm. DeFi is one of them. And, and blockchain won't be solving world hunger. So I don't see a future where every other tech application is basically built off of blockchain. I, I see it as a Ferrari of automobiles. And, and right. as much as we all want one, we, we all don't need one. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's how I, I look at um, blockchain as a whole. I think fundamentally the way um, I like a definition of how it's going to disrupt the lives we live a few years down the line is that and i'm going to steal this line from a book called green green pilled um, mm -hmm. where it says um, the technology essentially allows you um, to convert your values into programmable money um, and so let me let me maybe double click you know on that a little bit um, so whatever your community's shared values are um, you can essentially capture that value into a token, which makes it possible to create an economy around your community using that token, which essentially represents the value that you cherish. Um, now that value will change based on, you know, different communities and, and what you really hold dear to yourself. Mm -hmm. But having that power to essentially design a microeconomy um, and be able to use it to collaborate with each other, for me, is the biggest um, differentiator that the blockchain is going to provide. Um, that may manifest in, in, in some cases using decentralized finance, where the token or the money essentially captures a certain aspect of your financial workflow. It could manifest on the other end of the spectrum. Um, if I take an example of a Gitcoin, which is essentially a platform to fund open source software in Web3, and mm -hmm. the value there is collaboration. And, and so the token, the more community believes in that as a value to cherish and sustain, the higher the value of that token is going to be. And so essentially all the historical and traditional barriers to collaboration that were presented because we were using fiat as a currency um, are now in theory replaceable because you now have a token that represents the value you cherish and now you can collaborate and, and create your own community. So that's the theory. Um, I think in practice, we all know there are a lot of challenges when right. any number of people come together, right from culture to how to work together to how to grow together are very intricate um, questions and, and there, there can be a lot of opinions on how to make it happen. Uh, so the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, the technology alone is not going to cut it. Um, I think we need a variety of diverse thoughts across 
how humans work with each other, um, behavioral scientists, psychologists, um, non-technologists, designers. I think everybody needs to come together and then figure out yeah. what role this technology needs to play in our lives. No, it's in, uh, and 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 like you know, good that you mentioned about communities and uh, individually. I'm a fan of collective accountability. Like if we see, and there are like a lot of use cases that like you know we can implement. Maybe a government, maybe like you know NGO, uh, and helping like society to like you know grow using technology uh, is is I think uh, the the best that can happen, uh, or like you know the best use of the technology. Um, so I'm just curious and like, you know, in a DAO, which is like decentralized autonomous organization, uh, how do you take decisions in the setup? Like, you know, who leads the decision? Because it's, it's, it's everyone like, you know, community coming together, uh, people having like, you know, different thoughts, uh, everyone coming from like different cultures. So how do you like, you know, really drive, um, uh, drive like, you know, decisions and uh, towards the end, like, you know, meeting that collective accountability kind of like, you know, goal? Right. I, I think it's a very interesting space and, and the right answers are being tried and tested as we speak. Um, mm -hmm. so, so there are no best practices as yet. Uh, I think some of the patterns that have helped um, is the fact that if the community has come together for a cause, which is beyond the economics, which is you know beyond the financial gain, those communities tend to do well in setting up processes that work for them in terms of how do you resolve decisions and in case of a conflict um, you know how do you arbitrate um, that conflict um, so so it it all goes back to the field of organization design at the end of the day um, and there is an entire spectrum where at its highest level um, the two layers that a decentralized autonomous organization is made up of consists of one the social layer right the people mm -hmm. who come together and create a certain kind of rule set on how do we work with each other so that that's your social layer and then there is the autonomous layer which is to say hey which of these um, rules can be codified as quote-unquote smart contracts that can execute on their own uh -huh. based on certain set of triggers so now there is a balance, there is a social layer yes. and then there is an autonomous layer. Now, based on what is the relative distribution of how you've designed your DAO, there mm -hmm. is, you can imagine a range of possibilities here. And there is no right or wrong answer. I think um, there is, um, I think in the near future, there's gonna be a role for a governance designer, um, if yes. that is a word. <laughs> um, and, and essentially what that person's job is going to be is based on the context of the community, their culture and the problem they're trying to solve. What is the best organization structure and governance to for, for making the DAO to be successful? So the short answer to your question is there are DAOs who have been completely successful by having everything decentralized where all um, and every single decision happens on a, on a vote. Um, and there are communities where um, the voting happens only for very few critical decisions and a score and a central core group of coordinators run everything. Um, so, so as I said, there's no right answer, but I, I hope the, it, it shows up the spectrum of possibilities. Yes, yes. Yeah. No, beautiful. And uh, like, you know, some 10 years ago, I was a big fan of building something for uh, transparent, like, you know, governance. Uh, so I was thinking as like, you know, building 
uh, let's say we have like you know just just a software that lets people to add like you know their problems like imagine a, a government jira like you know platform where people sure. would add like you know their problems oh hey we have like issues with like let's say electricity maybe like you know power supply uh, water supply and then uh, individuals from government agency would like you know pick up and uh, provide like much more uh, like you know information about what's what's happening with their uh, like you know tickets and so on um, but like breaking that further down into like small communities uh, i think it's it's a, it's a very good like you know interesting idea right. and i really like like how it is like you know being structured and i see that how it goes like you know back to the blockchain where you mentioned about the smart contracts um so i think for real estate blockchain is is a very good like you know use case because uh, often like you know we see that uh, there are issues such as like land fraud and like you know title like being misplaced or like you know being taken away by someone else but having that keys with uh, through within that network helps because you really cannot like alter with with like you know the nodes and the smart contracts and like you know the chain um also like you were here in uh, dao uh, having that accountability like you know once the decision is being made you 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 cannot like change and there's like you know transparency about how that decision was like you know taken so um yeah interesting right, so right. yeah i think one thing i'll say the two interesting examples that you bought one was in context of just the government operations and and being mm-hmm. able to do it transparently and the other was land records i think one of the least discussed topics in this field um, aside from all the euphoria and hype about how blockchain <laughs> is going to solve world hunger is the fact that no one's addressing the politics that is going to be involved in making this technology mainstream at the end of the day the biggest challenge is not going to be the social aspect of the community it is not going to be the engineering of the autonomous layer they are problems and they will get solved the biggest problem in this is what we are trying to decentralize essentially we are trying to decentralize power power and right. what that means is the communities will have to have a dialogue with centers of power today whether it's media whether it's music industry whether it's government whatever space you're trying to disrupt those who are controlling the power need to be willing to be open and and share and decentralize only then all of this tech and community will fit okay. in the social context and I, I just feel this is one of the least discussed um, you know concepts and all the hype and euphoria behind the tech <laughs> no and building communities is becoming critical as well uh, so if if you really see like how stripe grew their uh, like you know saas product they focused on building communities um, and and they built something for very specific to like you know engineers to developers they were uh, uh, their first statement was like you know um, easy easy to integrate payment solutions for engineers and not for like clients not for like you know um, their end users but highly focused on uh, engineers and then uh, they heavily invested into like you know building communities uh, the the dev conferences and so on so i think communities itself uh, irrespective of, like you know falling within the dao or like you know as community as simple as like you know having a group of engineers is going to play a very critical role um so like taking a look at like you know from 2016 to 20 like pre covid era uh, it, it it was like more of a sharing economy we saw uber we saw airbnb rb share crowdmed um like product coming in uh and and then came like you know the cloud uh, people moving like you know from uh, on premises to to everything moving to cloud what is the next boom that like you know you see uh, in the software field or the software industry um i 
I'm not certain if this is going to be a boom or not, but one wishful um, thought I have, which I hope turns true, is the concept of um, platform cooperatives. Um, so continuing the theme on community, um, I'm, I'm hoping that the barriers to starting up and the barriers to technology are lowering to the extent that communities can come together to create a platform and co-own the company together. Um, so as an example, there is a ride, ride hailing company in New York, which is co-owned by the driver. It's called Drivers Co-op. Um, so if it can happen in New York, I mean, it could happen um, in theory, pretty much every big city where um, you don't have to give um, the intermediaries the most share of your value, the, the creators of the value in this case, right, the cab drivers could keep most mm -hmm. of it. Um, yeah. I think traditionally, the two biggest challenges in context of building software has been access to capital. Um, and then secondly, um, just the barrier to use and adopt technology. And I think with every passing year, both of these barriers are, are lowering with access to alternative capital outside of venture itself. Yeah. And, you know, with low code and no code, a lot of the technology hopefully becomes easier to adopt. Um, so I'm hoping that the confluence of these two and empowers more communities to create pl platform cooperatives. So the, the softwares that we use in the future may not necessarily be by a company that's listed um, in, in, in a share market. It would be owned by the people who create the value. Interesting, interesting. So do you see like, you know, similarities between the way we have cooperative, like, you know, societies in Maharashtra uh, running on like, you know, similar principles, uh, but maybe like, you know, minus the technology? Yes, similar. I, I think the if, if we go back to the history of cooperatives, like the Rochdale principles, the seven principles of cooperatives were written in 1844. Um, so, so I don't think we're talking anything groundbreaking here. I think to your point, adopting those principles and using tech as an enabler to get communities together is um, is hopefully the future. But at the same time, as we discussed culture and and getting community together is easier said than done. It's <laughs> so that's going to be the biggest challenge. I think the tech and finance hopefully are no longer the biggest challenges. Agree, agree. I'll agree on that. And even like, you know, if we look at like the current scenario with the cooperative societies, um, culture and like, you know, bringing people together or keeping them together has been a challenge. Um, so a lot of like, you know, sugar factories and everything were formed. Um, but keeping them together was not possible. A privatization kicked in and uh, like, you know, cooperative suffered. Right. Um, cool, cool. So now that we are talking about like, you know, adoption. Um, so the next question that I have from Narendran is, um, how do you decide to go with a uh, self-service portal versus like, you know, enterprise route uh, for your software or like, you know, for your SaaS product? So uh, to elaborate more on this, um, so often you see like, you know, there are softwares which can be self-service, meaning that you can go on their website, uh, you can like, you know, sign up and then your uh, like, you know, the system is all set up uh, on the cloud. And uh, some of the enterprise, like, you know, for example, Salesforce, uh, they have like enterprise route where you contact uh, the AE, then they set up like, you know, engagement manager, maybe like, you know, implementation manager, and then like things flow in. Uh, so. Uh, how how do you decide whether to go with like you know self service portal or enterprise route and is there any framework uh, like you know that we can choose from? 
Got it. Um, I think I'm going to be the last person who knows a lot of frameworks. Um, I, I tend to just use horses for the courses, so I'll I'll create a framework on the fly. Sure. Um, so 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 maybe let's let's start with the end in the mind, right? Whether it's self-service or enterprise. At the end of the day, we we want to create an experience that makes it easy uh, for the user to perform a certain action in the day of the life. Um, so whether it's ease of doing business or, or some other um, metric that we want to track. And to, to enable that, to take one step prior to that, um, the way any software enables that is either giving a lot of these features out of the box, so you don't have to do a lot after you buy it, or um, you, you make it highly configurable, so you could make it really applicable across a variety of sectors and industries. And, and during your software design, that's always a healthy balance, right? Like how, how much do you want the user uh, to make it easy to use out of, out of the box versus um, how versatile and diverse is your client base that you need to factor X number of scenarios so you would rather make it configurable. I, I think then the first thing that I think of is typically the experiences that tend to be um, a lot more involved where you need to configure a certain set of options to give the end user the best experience, they tend to go um, towards the enterprise route where you do need to work through a relationship, explain what your context and problem is. So then something like a Salesforce or a NetSuite or a similar platform can be best configured to your use. Um, the power there is its configurability means you can really adapt it across a variety of industries. The drawback is that initial setup um, that you do need to spend time and energy before you could um, get your you know, day one ROI. Um, on the flip side, like if, if, you're, if your use case is such that um, there is not as much variability in, in terms of what the user needs to do to start using it and get, get running with it, um, I, I tend to see that most software will then form into the self-service portal. Um, where if you've paid the subscription, you're, you're good to go. You don't even need like a help menu to, to go run with it. Um, so that could be one approach to sort of break that, uh, that dilemma or that decision. And I love the framework that you just created on the fly. So uh, the key takeaway is you talked about like, you know, the ease of doing business, which is very important. And the second is like, you know, the, the configurability. So how you can easily configure a software and the third thing i would say is like you know the the context and the relationship building uh, often like for larger like you know uh, maybe like large acvs and large uh, contracts uh, it makes sense to kind of like you know go through a route where you are able to kind of understand their uh, requirements maybe like you know understand their business problem and then see how your software can be configured in a way that the the clients like you know get the highest roi um perfect uh, narendran do you have any any more uh, like you know question or a follow up question on this one no, no, I, I think I, I, it was pretty much, you know, clear from what Rohit had made, you know, answered in that. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so moving to the next question, and this is, this is the big topic, Rohit, uh, culture, right? So question from Nandini, uh, basis on the ongoing scenario and evolving situations. What are the important traits of culture that you suggest needed in a company and amongst the team? 
Yeah, it's. I think it's probably another another half day session. <laughs> it's <laughs> one of my favorite topics. Uh, but if I have to summarize it, um, I think this was also true to my my own lived experience. Is that if you can create an environment where no matter who you are and and where you are from, um, if you can find belonging in the team, um, everything else is a byproduct. Um, so your specific values that you write or aspects of culture may be different, but if the outcome is that uh, no matter who you are as an individual, if you are able to find belonging in mm-hmm. that space, in that company, in that team, um, then then everything else falls in place. Um, so the most important trait of culture would be would be that how do you create belonging for a variety of people who may think differently who may problem solve differently like even in our field right designers right. tend to think differently than engineers and even within engineering True. there's just a wide variety of diversity beyond just ge- the the basic attributes of gender and you know geography and others um, there's just sheer diversity of even how people yeah. think um, so, so I tend to I tend to um, uh, overdrive on belonging, and if if people find belonging, then what happens is they they are their true selves inside and outside of the workplace, and and when you're your true self, that's when your best work happens. Um, so, so that's that's the dotted line I, I like to connect between belonging to being authentic to producing your best work. So basically, kind of like you know, having that feeling that this is my team, this is my like you know tribe, um, this is this is where I belong, and uh, often like you know we see the definition of culture as like fancy offices, uh, like you know fancy chairs, coffee machines, and so on. That's not culture, that's maybe ambience. Um, but what culture like you know is is literally like what you said, like the people feeling that oh hey like you know this is my team this is where i belong this right. is where i feel comfortable like you know being in in my best version um awesome so yeah. um again like you know my follow up question to this road how do you build that like you know strong and vibrant culture and what role does the leadership play in in, in this entire like you know uh, transition um i think the way i'd like to say it is getting out of the way <laughs> so <laughs> Um, so let let me um, let, let me start from the beginning, right? I, I think you have to start um, culture building right at the point where where you do your hiring decisions. Um, it's being very um, meticulous and intentional in ensuring that you're not hiring people who think exactly like you do uh, is important. I think yes. that, that's the starting point. Um, everything else tends to be a compounding effect from that decision, uh, which is where I, I said it jokingly, but uh, but which is where you don't you need to get out of the way once once you have found that right team. Um, so so that that's one thing from a hiring standpoint. Um, the other thing um, I think all of us um, and I found this from you know from being a parent. Um, the best way you can teach something to your kids is is not by telling, but by doing. And and they learn immensely just by observing people around right. them. And I think there is that aspect of human nature never changes. You know, no matter how old you grow up. So it, similarly, in an, in an office setup, right? You could print your values and you know post it on the wall or put it on the mug and and you have fancy deck on your culture. But at the end of the day what choices and actions and behaviors um, the leaders are doing 
is what um, the rest of the team will organically pick up. Um, so the the best way to build mm-hmm. that culture is is essentially be the be that culture, uh, you know, in day to day actions which build up to habits and behaviors. Right, right. So lead by example, basically, like you know, when when you say that your culture is, oh hey, we don't kind of like you know do the blame game. So the leadership should be in a in a like you know having that lead by example kind of thing where they don't like you know put blames it's just like let's accept move on understand what's the problem statement was maybe document it and then find like you know solutions um so yeah and uh higher experts right um so like someone who can add more value and this is something that i also uh, uh like you know share with my team is that find someone who is like you know more smarter than you uh and like you know someone who can add like more value nice um yeah, and, and one of the best ways to see that um, perspective is during conflict resolution. Um, when everything's going nice and well, um, you know, it's easier to stick to the <laughs> values that you profess. Um, it's when you tend to resolve conflicts is when, um, you know, a, a lot of the culture is tested. Um, so conflict resolution, I think um, it, it's a good thing to have um, because that's what will build your culture. True, true, true. And one more thing that you mentioned, uh, Rohit, was on like, you know, the hiring. So right now, the Indian hiring scenario is pretty hot, like, you know, people giving BMWs to offering like, you know, a lot of like, uh, hike. Um, So my question is around like, you know, do you think that we should have a neck to neck hiring strategy or always hire for bench? Um, I don't know the right answer. I can share what we have done. Um, I think we have toggled between the two uh, based on the economic outlook. Um, so, so as an example, um, when we know that as a business, uh, we, we are going to do well, we, we tend to increase um, our bench strength. And the reason is that we want to use that buffer to then invest into things that our clients are not asking us to do. Um, because that's your window. Um, I, I will roughly say that that's your research and you know research and development. That's your R and D budget to essentially use that slack um, in your team to figure out what should we be building now that's going to be relevant six to eight months down the line. Um, versus if you're in an in an economy which is really hard on all businesses, um, then I would you know lean towards more neck to neck. Um, which is essentially also to say that, hey, let's not be in a position where we have to let people go. We would rather right. not hire than have to take uh, a tougher decision. Um, so net-net, I think you might classify this as being financially conservative as a strategy. Um, right. But we, we see ourselves toggling between the two based on how the overall industry is doing. Got it, got it. Uh and and I think like you know the follow up, uh, the connecting question to this is uh, from from Pratik. So hiring is one thing uh, from a scale perspective, uh, but from like you know let's say from a product perspective, do you build for like you know build for so so there's two thought two two thought process. One is like build for MVP, and the other is like you know build for MVP, but keeping the scale or like you know considering the future scale. Uh, so what would you suggest, like, you know, based on your experience, is it like focus on one milestone, go build the MVP, like, you know, just just try the markets, see if it is like, you know, it's, it's able to run and then uh, consider like, you know, building for scale or is it like 
built for MVP, but considering like, you know, scale. So a mix of like a startup code and an industrial code. Got it. Um, I have, I love to confess my answer is going to be half baked because there's only one product I've worked in a startup setup and all of my other product experience has been in a consulting setup for clients. So this, this mm-hmm. question, you know, morphs differently based on what product we're talking about, but based on what the limited experience I've seen, um, if you're building for B2B, it, it is incredibly harder to get a right vision for your future scale. So you, you may have a picture on your drawing board to say that, hey, two years down the line, when our business will be X times, this is how our product might look. But in all probability, you will learn a lot more through that journey. So that picture is probably an overstatement of where you want to go. Um, so my immediate reaction off the top of my head is to um, you know be a little bit more humble and, and get your MVP right um, <laughs> for, a, a, for a very core defined set of use cases within a specific industry. Uh, Once you get that right, and once you crack it for one industry, uh, it becomes relatively easier um, to then uh, go talk to some of the other industries, bring their nuances um, and and, um, play along. So that's from a B2B standpoint. So that's my only exposure, you know, to building product in a purely startup setup was B2B. Um, and that worked well for that company that I was part of, where they they really spent the first couple of years figuring out how to make it work uh, for a specific industry. This was a customer experience product, and it was in context of the hospitality industry. But over the next 10 years, they were able to successfully take that core MVP and then expand beyond hospitality because they they, they had the core engine that was working really well for them. Got it. No, that makes sense. So like, you know, build the MVP and, and the journey from zero to five or zero to 10 is always like, you know, hard. Uh, and uh, your MVP is going to play a very important role. If you are thinking about 100 different use cases, um, you are investing your energy resources and like, you know, literally all of them. So it is instead of that, just focus on a couple of very strong, like, you know, use cases slash candidates, and then uh, try to like, you know, uh, build product and then scale it from there um yeah okay um so uh, not going to like you know bug you with a lot of questions uh Ruhit, uh this is this is the last one <laughs> and uh, this is from madhuri uh, she says that in your literature uh, there is a quadrant for solution space for building built to budget um, and i want to understand what factors play an important role while deciding the cost uh, could you share your experiences and insights all right, so um, I, I can share theory from a startup context because I don't have hands-on experience. I think if if I'm building that product in a in a startup mode, my version of build to budget would be if assuming if I've taken investment and let's say if I have an eighteen month runway to prove an outcome and go for another funding round. Um, so then essentially that becomes my budget to to make sure. I can utilize it judiciously within that runway to be able to show the outcome so that then I can go knocking for the next round of funding. Um, so that that would be the definition of budget and a constraint for me in, in, a, in a startup setup. Um, I, I think I've had more experience on the other side where um, in a consulting setup, a client may typically have a problem, then they come up to you to say, hey, is there something we can do in the digital space to be able to solve that problem? I think a lot of times um, 
when you calculate the budget bottoms up, assuming that you have figured out the right experience to solve that problem, you know what kind of engineering is going to need for that experience, including hardware and software, and you could make up a bottoms up budget. Uh, but in, in all probability, um, you might end up in a situation where that's not very amenable to, to the client and they may have a top down number. Um, so in more, more cases um, than not, that, that budget becomes an arbitrary piece of the pie in terms of the overall um, um, funding that the client may have based on the priority of the problem. It's something that's really impacting their top line. The budget tends to be more versus otherwise. Um, so um, yeah, it's not, unfortunately, I don't have a very scientific answer. A, a lot of times you will get an arbitrary number. Uh, to fit your experience in engineering. I think what I, I, I have found useful is to show early wins. If you can, um, even in the form of a no code or a design prototype, be able to say that, hey, this is the difference this experience is gonna make to your business, either at the top line or saving some of the bottom line. I, I have found in more instances or not, that budget becomes fungible. And then you're able to pound the table and, and ask for more based on those early wins. Um, so again, you know, going back to the whole philosophy of the last 20 years with Agile and, you know, not having to wait 18 months to see a software working. Um, I think I would say double down on your early wins and, and that is one way to make your budget fungible. Got it. So basically, like, you know, work on your POCs uh, and, and prove that, like, you know, this is something that can work and go like you know find more uh, budgets uh, so from a consulting practice perspective Rohit, um when we are talking about budgets uh, and like you know risk management becomes an important point to be like you know riskers so from a budgetary perspective uh, when stakeholders kind of like you know approve budget what delta do you uh, like you know based on your experience uh, should 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 the pm skip should it be like you know a 10% delta a 15 like you know less than 5 what what does like you know your uh, point here I, yeah, in my experience, no matter what the number is, it's going to be at risk. <laughs> so uh, I think the way to look at it uh, a little bit more objectively, which may or may not lead you to a quantified number, is how much risk you are willing to take on day one of the project. Um, so if I, if I have to, at the risk of generalization, um, the biggest driver for a project to overrun budget is the lack of the team's readiness to be productive on day one. Um, so as an example, a lot needs to happen before day one in terms of thinking through the product strategy, um, ensuring that this is a problem worth solving, gaining alignment between whoever signs the check and whoever is going to be the consumer of that experience. Um, so all of these things need to fall in place in day one, including having the access to the right people and the right technology, the right infrastructure. And more often than not, most clients are not ready to engage on day one, which then leads to cascading delays. Either your designs are running late, which leads to your engineering overruns, which leads to compromises or half-baked decisions in architecture, which increases tech debt. Um, so there is a cascading effect which eventually shows up as a budget overrun. Um, so what I would say the short answer to your question is based on the number of risks you are signing up for on day one in terms of readiness to engage, the higher the number of risks, um, you know, the higher should be your buffer 
for your budget, um, which would mean, you know, anywhere between 30 to 40 percent on the higher side versus let's say if you have full clarity on the strategy and why we're doing it, there is everybody's pounding on the table that this is the right thing to build. There is no stakeholder conflicts. Um, everything from engineering to design is available and ready to start. You could you know, tend to lower that number closer to single digits. Um, it's a best case scenario that I've very rarely seen. <laughs> I would agree. Uh, very hard to kind of like, you know, get that uh, delta into like single digit. And um, now that like, you know, we are talking about like identifying risk, uh, I think the the selection of the project methodology also plays a very important role. Um, so are you going with like, let's say waterfall or are you going with like agile, um, uh, like, you know, plays an important role. So based on uh, like in your experience, Rohit, like, you know, do you um, think that waterfall uh, works best or agile works best? This is this is one of the hot questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to disappoint you again. I think <laughs> I, I'll say um, horses for the courses. Um, so there are definitely valid engineering efforts where you may have a degree of clarity in terms of what you want to build um, and very little ambiguity. Um, in that case, I, I think, you know, the ceremonial overhead of iterating every two weeks in an agile setup is not worth it. Uh, if it's a clear use case, if it's a small engineering team um, and, and there is a degree of clarity which says, hey, this is the problem, this is the experience and this is the approach for engineering, I, I would lean to, to waterfall. And, and I do that a lot for a lot of the internal projects that, that we do uh, within the mm -hmm. organization um, where the risks out of waterfall are also internal. Um, but what's happening more and more, and the reason why Agile appears to be a panacea to everyone is, is that uh, degree of readiness is low, uh, right? When you, when you start a project, um, you may have the budget, you may, you may have the schedule as to when you want to launch, mm -hmm. but the why and the how may not always be clear. And, and the reason that sometimes we tend to defer to Agile is because it gives you an appearance that you can delay some of the decisions. Um, which in yep. hindsight is not is not really accurate. In fact, it's exactly opposite. If you want to be productive every two weeks and ship an outcome that's valuable, you need to spend more time in planning. Um, so, so I would I would tend towards agile if there is a lot lot of ambiguity in in terms of what experience we need to build. Um, and and then I'll I'll lean I will say I'll lean more towards iterative methods than saying agile because. Um, there are a lot more ways to be iterative in addition to be uh, than just being agile. Yeah, and and at every like you know two weeks, uh, often we see uh, like you know within within our groups, it's like oh hey something is not achieved. All right, let's add it to the backlog. Um, so we we sometimes like you know not running in sprints, uh, even even though kind of like you know we call that a sprint and. Right. Uh, the benefit I see with agile is that like the visibility of like where do you stand. Uh, and and as you mentioned, sometimes you may not have the answers to how you're doing, why you're doing, and like, you know, maybe uh, having like a lot of like unknowns in that entire process. On the other side, like waterfalls helps you to understand, like, you know, get more clarity on what are those unknowns? How are you going to do it? What resources you may be required? Uh, and like, you know, just set the expectations uh, before versus like agile, like, you know, that lets you change over the period of time. Uh, so I think the change here is is a key factor. If you're pretty sure about what you're building, waterfall makes sense. 
um, if you if your if your uh, changes are uh, dependent on the market, uh, the the changing conditions, I think agile uh, works. Uh, no, thanks yeah. for that insights, Rohit. Great. So uh, I'll open up uh, like you know the the mic for everyone. Um, so um, uh, Amit, Narendra, Matri, Pratik, uh, Nandi, if you have any questions, feel free to uh, ask Rohit. Uh, hi, Rohit Pratik, this side. Hey, Pratik. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing the valuable journey till now. Like, it's been a pleasure listening to you. Like, I think this one and a half hours long session will surely help all of us, all of us at FP product team mm, to gain something new from tomorrow onwards. So, and as we uh, reach to the conclusion, uh, I think I would like to listen a poem from you. Like, you you're a big fan of writing poems. So I, I would not like uh, uh, I'll not ask anything from the product side. I, I would like, like love to hear a poem from you. All right, this was a question that I hadn't prepared for. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, Any just, anyone which is coming to your mind? I think you... I I definitely don't know everything I've written by. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So I'm gonna I'm just opening up the browser as we're speaking. <laughs> <laughs> to figure out, um, you know, something that's more timely through, you know, what we're going on. Um, uh, I'm just, yeah, give me like 10, 15 seconds. And um, so, yeah, I, I think in context, so let me try to make a connection to product. <laughs> so yes, that would so, be really awesome. <laughs> this is a poem I wrote um, in context of a lot of um, um, dialogue that happens in our social and physical lives um, around holding a certain beliefs so close to your heart that it starts to harm others um and and something like that will also happen if if you know product managers tend to be dogmatic <laughs> within their teams um, so the title of this poem is don't um, and this is how it goes um, don't believe every thought don't act on every emotion don't opine in every debate don't react to every instigation don't chase every desire don't succumb to every fear. Don't rave every win. Don't agonize every loss. Don't earn for every memory. Don't fantasize every dream. You may think you are the doer in every act. You may sense the world as another separate fact. Don't. Awesome. Thank you so much. Wow. Beautiful. Thanks for putting me on the spot, Pratik. <laughs> <laughs> no, and sometimes it's like you know important to to like you know slow down uh, and and like you know not not run behind. So uh, I think I really like that like you know sentence uh, from your poem that don't run behind every thought. It, it is not necessary. Um, focus on what you have and uh, be kind to yourself. It's it's a, it's a marathon and not a sprint. Even though we work in sprints in agile, it's a marathon. It's it's a long like you know run that we have to go through. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Thanks for all the questions. Now I think it 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 forced me to think through and and backtrack a lot of decisions I've taken. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Thanks for keeping me honest. No, thank you, Rohit, for your uh, time this evening. It was amazing, uh, like, you know, having this interaction with you, learning more about uh, blockchain, uh, DAOs and community. Community is going to play a very important role and like building culture for leaders who listening this. It's important, like, you know, you 
be the example you take the first step and own that culture if you're not owning it's no matter like you know whether you're having a beautiful office and like you know maybe work from home policy and so on but if if you're not adhering to what you're saying uh maybe your team may not follow you and that's going to hurt you in the long run so once again thank you so much roit for uh, your time and uh, we will definitely like you know set up a another like you know call just only for culture there's so much to learn from you so uh yeah i will look forward to the to the next call sometime soon thanks now thanks everyone for having me have a great day <laughs> thank you thank you take okay, care bye. and have the, a good rest of your evening you too bye bye all right bye